Colossians chapter 2. Give to you. And Solomon says, I wanted, he wanted wisdom. He wanted wisdom. 
you know, and, and so when Solomon begins to pour out uh, wisdom that God had provided into the book of Proverbs, there's really just so much there. I mean, you know, uh, me and my wife were talking the other day, like it's amazing that, you know, if you read the proverb a day for so long, like there's still things that when you read it, you're like, golly. Like this is exactly, you know, over 2,000 years ago, and this is exactly what I need now, today. You know, and, and so with that, you know, understanding that the wisdom that Proverbs gives us is a vital element to our pursuit of holiness, to our uh, discipleship, all these things that we do as Christians. And so the question that as I was preparing to go into Proverbs was a question that would be our title this morning would be, why worry? You know, and, and I know, you know, when we talk about our faith, when we talk about the Bible, you know, we're, we're called not to worry. But I kind of wanted to view this in a way that, for us, when we talk about worry, we're usually just talking about, like, taking something into consideration or being concerned about it to a certain degree. And so the question for us, you know, if we're talking about what we know about God, our wisdom, our knowledge, our understanding about who God is and what God does, the question that maybe we ask ourselves, and sometimes the world around us may ask, why worry? Like, why worry? Why worry about the specifics of who God is? Why worry about what we believe as a local church? Like, why worry about how we disciple people? Why worry about how we reach people? Why worry about uh, church governance? Like, why worry about baptisms and communion? Like, why worry about any of those things? And, you know, and as I was looking for a, a picture, and, you know, obviously any illustration you take too far, it kind of breaks down, but just looking at this picture, the reason we worry is because what the world presents us is many different paths, right? A lot of different steps, a lot of different uh, paths to take that they may communicate. All these paths lead to the same direction or the same destination, but they don't. Every path does not lead to the same destination. You know, and as we've seen this morning, you know, seeing about Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, straight from Scripture. This is who God is. This is who Christ came to be for us. And so the thing about us, you know, the question is, why worry with it? Why worry with what we believe? Why we worry with what we pursue, what we teach, how we influence? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. It says, many men know a great deal and are greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a fool. Uh, there is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. You know, we live in the information age, right? We live where everything we need to know, we believe anyway, is at our fingertips. That surely if it's on the internet, it's the truth, right? I mean, surely if the news media is telling me it's the truth. I mean, surely if somebody's taking the time to put a lot of effort in it, there must be truth to it. And I think for a lot of us, the reason why, you know, we may get deceived, we may be led in different directions, and there's a lot of different things, but in a lot of ways it's the way things are presented to us, whether it's, you know, production value or passion or whatever it might be, all these things like, man, that looks great, it must be right. Like, it makes me feel good, so that must be right. But what we see Paul here in Colossians chapter 2 is he's writing to these people of Colossae. You know, for a lot of us, I and mean, many of the people that we interact with, our kids, our family, I mean, you know, we're a highly educated, highly knowledgeable group of people as far as humanity right now. I mean, everything we need is right here. 
learn. It's funny, we have the most opportunity to have the most biblical knowledge that we've ever had in human history, and we seem to be the furthest that we could be away from God in some ways as a culture. But the thing is, many of us aren't lacking knowledge. We know a lot. The problem is we lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. We lack the application of our knowledge. We, we lack that ability to know what to do with the knowledge that we have. And so what Paul is doing here is he's kind of revealing to these people, you know, the, 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 to understand that the content of our knowledge determines our pursuit. And, and that if there are many paths, they can't all be right. Like all the information we get, it can't all be productive for us. All the information we get, whether it's, even if it's spiritual information, it's not all right. Like it doesn't all lead us to the right things. And so the question for us that we ask ourselves as we prepare to go into the book of Proverbs, but we'll be in Colossians today, is why worry with it? Why worry with what we know? Why worry that my kids have a good understanding of biblical truth? is leaning towards the biblical truth. Like, why worry with any of those things? And, and I believe that here in Colossians, we'll see some things in one. Why worry about it? The first thing is this. Because it's a command. Because it's a command to worry about. You know, we see here in verse 8, Paul writes in his people and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. You know, I, I, I kind of focused in on this phrase, see to it. Because that, that in itself is a command. Communicating to us as Christian people a responsibility for all Christians, him or herself, and for the sake of their family to be mindful and attentive. All throughout the Bible, we constantly get these active verbs. These verbs that tell us to do something. Too many of us, too often in our Christian faith, we live a very passive, apathetic Christian walk where we live it when it's comfortable for us, but the moment that it requires active participation from us is the moment that we begin to kind of pull back because a lot of times that active participation leads us into places where we're not comfortable or it challenges us. And just in general, we don't like to necessarily be challenged or uncomfortable, uncomfortable all that much. But all throughout God's Word, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, a common theme is active faith. A common theme. I mean, we see stand firm, take courage, be strong and courageous, be aware, be sober-minded, run the race, fight the fight. I mean, these phrases over and over and over again communicated to a to be active in the pursuit of what God has for them and what God wants them and us to do. So he has called us, God gives us several direct commands to take on the role of aggressor in a spiritual battle for knowledge and wisdom in our lives. We need aggressors. You know, not passive rapidly. And so why do we worry with it? Because it's a command. The second thing is this. Why worry with it? If we don't, then the wrong things capture us in confusion. Because if we don't, the wrong things will capture us in confusion. What do I mean by that? In verse 8, he says this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and into deceit. 
And so this word captive in some other translations, oh, sorry, <laughs> in some other translations, this word captive may be translated as, as cheats. You know, and so it may lead like this. Uh, see to it that no one cheats you. You know, it's a term for robbery. That uh, that's that's you know what for us to understand it when he says to them, you know, see to it that no one takes you captive, or that no one cheats you, or no one robs you. Because what counterfeit truth does is counterfeit truth robs from us. Counterfeit truth robs us of joy. Counterfeit truth robs us of experiencing who God is and what God does in the life of believers. And so counterfeit truth cheats us out of what God intends for us to have. And so he says, see to it that no one captivates you or captive makes you captive or cheats you. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You know what I mean? That's a very unique verse, because our world lives kind of in this space of confusion, right? That if, if you've lived long enough over the past couple of years, a lot of ways that word confusion has been used to as, as a lifestyle, right? As a way to live and to do things however I feel like I want to because I'm confused about who I am and what I should be doing. And so when God tells us, He says, listen, nothing from God is confused. I mean, God has not done anything with us, given us anything with the intention of us living by a confusion lifestyle, confusion mentality. That is not how God works. God is very clear. But the false teaching takes that place of kind of allowing confusion to be something that we live by, something that we're driven by. And so for us to understand what Paul wants them to know is that the intention of false teaching is to rob us of the truth, to strip away the blessing and experience of Christ in our lives. And then he says, in the rest of verse 8 there, he says, by philosophy or empty deceit. And so the word philosophy, you know, and, and, and he says that because he wants us to understand that these things that are deceiving and that they have kind of keep us captive, that they may be disguised as philosophy in a lot of ways for them to communicate this word philosophy would have been an idea of an intellectual approach to something. That it seems very called out, that it seems very intelligent, that it, very, it seems very put together. And so he tells them, he says, don't, don't let them don't be taken captive by philosophy. Don't be taken captive by things because the word philosophy itself means to love wisdom. And so it seems like what I need, right? If God's called us to wisdom and philosophy is to love wisdom, then if they present something to me that seems intellectual and they present something to me that seems put together, then it must be right. But what Paul's saying there, he says, listen, there can be philosophy that is counterfeit and elegant. That is not the truth. That is not leading us down the path at which God has for us. But what it is actually doing is it's making us captive. It's making us prisoners of this counterfeit truth. And so, you know, the question for us is, so how is it possible for false teachers or false ideas or false uh, philosophies to capture us? Really, in a lot of ways, the answer is simple: is that captives are ignorant of the truths of God's word. You know, and then we would ask ourselves, well, how does that happen in a day and age when we have all this information? We have all this, you know, we have, I mean, tons of translations of God's word to fit pretty much any 
reading lifestyle, and we have uh, podcasts and videos and archaeological evidence and all these things that kind of communicate all these truths about who God is and what God has done, but we still live and in, in, in are quickly becoming, even in our own country, a, a, a country that needs mission work, right? I mean, we are, we are very quickly becoming a non-Christian country by majority. And so, how does that happen? It's because, you know, and ignorance isn't only what we don't know, but ignorance sometimes is what we choose not to know. What we choose not to know. And so, for us as people, you know, when we, when we don't see the reason for knowing the doctrines of our Christian faith, to understanding, you know, what it means to be uh, in, a, in a, a pursuit of holiness, of, of being disciples of Christ, and, and that Christ is our Lord, the Lord of our life, that He has saved us from our sin, like what these things mean for us, and we're not being driven by those things, or being drawn to the, to, towards those things, or finding any value in those things, then what happens? happens is that we will become captives of comfort. We will become captives of anything. We will grab a hold of any philosophy that seems like it makes sense to us. And in a lot of ways, within any philosophy that seems to make us fit in better with what the world's philosophy is. And we talk all the time that the Christian faith or philosophies are always going to look different than the rest of the world. Listen, if the world is patting us on the back because of our philosophy, then we miss something. It is not a and that's what he says here, even at the end of verse 8. He says that uh, according to the world and not according to Christ. Like, this isn't Christ if it leads you this way, if it's a philosophy that doesn't point you to Jesus. So 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There is so much being given to us today that is falsely called knowledge. That if you know this, if you believe this, if you ascribe to this, then you are ascribing to knowledge. That you are the most serious. If you understand and know and accept all these things, I mean, you know, this is this is the world where we live. This is where, you know, where kind of anti-Christian philosophies are invading universities to the point that where if you reject what the university's philosophy is, then you seem ignorant. You seem like you don't have knowledge. You seem like you don't uh, want to embrace what is true. It's like, you know, and, and so this is kind of the space in which we're navigating. And he says in our verse 8, according to human tradition, not according to Christ. And that's the point right there. That's the pivot point. That's, that's the place at which Paul gives us the litmus, litmus test of life. You know, and if you don't know what a litmus test is, it's something that they use to test things and they can drop these little droppers, it'll turn a certain color if the test goes a certain way. And so if you need to know what something is, this is this is what you use in this particular lab setting. Uh, we're not going to get into the real in-depth. I feel like every time I preach, I have some kind of illustration like that. But so the litmus test he tells us is this, this according to Christ or is this according to human tradition? Is this according to what God has proclaimed and revealed to through his revealed word? Or is this something that seems like it focuses on the comforts of humanity? Because in a lot of ways, we can find that and use that as a way to teach us how to navigate all the spaces of our Christian lives when we're trying to figure these things out. And Paul 
here shortly, but it shows us that what we believe is if this lines up with the MO of mankind, or does it find validation in the Word of God? Listen, because this is where, this is where even the Christian church is getting it wrong sometimes. We'll talk about it a little bit more specifically after we move on. But even in the Christian church, when we begin to disconnect ourselves from the Word of God, we stop seeing the value in God's Word, where God's Word isn't the absolute authority, where God's Word isn't the absolute thing driving us, leading us, kind of discipling us and molding us and sanctifying us. If it's not the absolute that we go back to, then ultimately we're always going back to our own feelings, our own thoughts, our own opinions to decide whether it's of God or not. And I don't know about you, but my feelings and my thoughts and my opinions are very, very, very poor tests for what is truth according to God. So I don't typically lean towards where God wants me to lean all the time. And he says in verse 8, he calls them elemental spirits or elementary principles. These simplistic ideas that move us towards simplicity, that move us towards shallow pursuits of God and spirituality. And so not only do uh, we worry because it captures us in communion, but then the last thing is this. And just like the picture which I've lost because I think my laptop died. We worry because it creates options. It creates options, like we talked about at the beginning. All paths that we would like to believe all lead to the same destination. Because when laid against the limitless test of life, whether it's the MO of mankind or the MO of God's word, we can very clearly see where these things don't line up. And so, you know, jumping over to verse 18 of Colossians, Paul begins to kind of lay out. Here's some things that if you see these things, these things are not of God because they don't line up with His Word. And what is just, just so amazing is it's so, so relatable to us today, even within our Christian culture. And so what you're going to see here is some things that seem very, very spiritual. And the thing about our world, our world does not mind being spiritual. They love being spiritual. They love the idea of being spiritual. But like we said, it's not just the knowledge, but it's the wisdom that shows us how to use that knowledge and leads us in that knowledge. And so, in verse 18, Paul says this. He says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail of our visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. So he says here, insisting on worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, and puffed up without reason, not holding fast to the head. And so when he says here at the beginning here, insisting on, he's speaking of someone who is in a, in a lot of ways very passionate, very committed to these ideas. And like we said in the beginning, passion is a poor validator for information. Because people can be very passionate about a lot of things. That does not validate it as truth. You can have a preacher standing in the most passionate sermon he's ever given in his entire life. And if everything he says does not line up with the Word of God, it is 
rubbish. Wow, it is rubbish. It is garbage. It, it, the literal translation it is dumb. Passion does not validate truth. And so he says these people are insisting on, insisting on this. You know, in a lot of ways, this seems very spiritual. There's very spiritual elements here, but it's portrayed, what Paul is saying is portrayed in a very inaccurate, damaging way to Christians. And so, what is this specifically for us as Christians to look at? What is he talking about? We know in our day and age, we like to categorize and add labels and names to everything. And so, what this is, this idea that he's talking about here, is this idea called mysticism. In a lot of ways, you'll see this in the Christian faith now. It's called Christian mysticism. And what it is, is it's an idea that, that focuses on a lot of these things that we that really mentions here very straight up vision. You know, have you ever heard people talk about having visions and that, listen, I'm not saying that God can't work in these ways. I am not trying to limit God into this box where he can't be overtly uh, engaged and spiritual with us. But... A lot of times, people will use these as leverage against people or against churches or against certain situations for their own good or their own power. I mean, you know, regardless of what you believe or don't believe about the, the elections and all those things, you know, when you have people, so-called Christians, coming on television in front of thousands and millions of people and say that they had a vision from God that this specific person is going to be president, it just makes all Christians look like fools, really. Because that's not how God works. That's not how that goes. But a lot of times what people do is this kind of Christian mysticism and they, they, they claim to have these visions. And a lot of times you'll even hear it. And, you know, we, we sing songs about some of these churches. They write much better songs than they have doctrine. But, you know, they'll have these things. They'll say these things like, you know, I, I just had this encounter with God, this vision of God when he came into my room and he grabbed me and he held me in his arms
And then we also, kind of on the other end of this, the Christian mysticism or this, this idea is we see something that we that is very prevalent today um, as we live in what they call a postmodern world that we have now, because the church unfortunately tends to kind of take on cultural characteristics, we have postmodern Christianity. Postmodern Christianity. So what this is, is this is a type of Christianity that is about experience over meaning. That is about subjectivity over objectivity. It's about spirituality over religion. It's about images over words. You know, and in, in some ways, these things aren't bad things. But in a lot of ways, they end up being either counterproductive or they end up being unbiblical and ungodly. You know, because the thing is, and this is a very popular thing, to be like, very not religious. Like, this is not religion. Like, this is, we are absolutely not being religious about anything. But in a lot of ways, you're being religious about not being religious. You know, because being religious is simply being committed and involved in, in, in giving yourself over to something. Like, being religious is not a bad thing. The problem is what you're being religious about. If you're being religious about, uh, you know, hurting people, if you're being religious about, uh, you know, disobeying God, I mean, if you're being religious about athletics, if you're being religious about whatever, I mean, you can be religious about a lot of things. Being religious isn't the problem. It's what we're being religious about. What's at the focus of our religion? Like, what are we committed to? I mean, you know, you can, the church over its history has been religious in a lot of wrong ways, but that does not make being religious a bad thing. We're all religious about something. Some people are just religious about not being religious. But you're still being religious, you know? And so we have to understand this. And so, you know, but the focus of this postmodern Christianity, like I said, not only not being religious, but wanting to be overtly spiritual, but also the focus is on experience. Like, how do we experience church? You know, you'll hear that a lot in kind of modern churches. Like, you know, I want to have a good experience. I want to... Because what is experience? Ultimately, experience is a feeling. And I'm not saying that experience... I'm all about aesthetic and how... You know, that's not a bad thing. But when our focus becomes experience, then that's when we start to lose track of the truth. You know, when we begin thinking can be subjective, how, how I feel, how I want, rather than objective based on how they really are, that's when things begin to change. That's when things begin to not be so clear and begin to get a little muddy. So like I said, are those things bad? I mean, are they good? They can be. Are they bad? They can be. You know, it depends on how far from the truth each reaction is. Portion of that is. You know, because for example, if experience is valued more highly than reason, then truth becomes relative, right? Truth becomes fluid. Or truth changes based off of what the experience needs to be. You know, an experience, a good experience is based off of how I feel, how I feel comfortable, if I had a good time, that I enjoy myself. You know, I mean, that's what most people, when we're, you know, I hear people talking about looking for a church. They, they're looking for a church that has the best experience. You know, how do, how do I feel when I go and how I feel when I leave? And that's just, 
how people are, are engaging. It, it could be very little to do with the context of the, the truth that they're being given. It's more about the experience. And so the problem with that is that experience is valuable, highly than reason, and truth becomes relative. And then this opens up all kinds of problems because as this lessens the standard that the Bible contains in absolute truth, or sometimes even disqualifies the biblical truth as being absolute in many cases. And so then if, if the Bible is not our source for absolute truth, but our personal experience is allowed to define and interpret the truth, then eventually, eventually, saving faith in Jesus Christ is rendered meaningless. Because we've stopped looking to God's Word, which has revealed that very thing. None of us know anything about who God is or who Christ is, except through His Word. But the funny thing is, is that for a lot of times, a lot of, we feel like the use of the Bible is archaic, right? When in reality, the use of the Bible is harder than we know anything about who God is on a deeper level. We cannot ever allow our experience to define us or to interpret our direction. I mean, all of us 
collectively, Christian and non-Christian agree that it is wrong to do certain things. Who decided that? Who told us that that's wrong? There has to be a source outside of ourselves that is dictated within us that to kill someone, to take someone's life is wrong. But the thing is, is that not everybody's moral code lines up with that, right? Because people die every day at the hands of other people. So if we live, so we can't say that it's okay for us as a people to live by our own internal moral code based on how I feel in my experience. Because then we don't want that for everybody. Because my moral experience and things a certain way, it may not hurt everybody the same way this one does. But if the moral standard is the internal, the internal moral standard of ourselves, why do we need to dictate that our moral standard is better than their moral standard if there's no true moral standard that dictates it all? Right? But there is. There's a moral standard that we all live by, whether we acknowledge it's from God or not, it's a reality. It's outside of ourselves. It's not something we decided as people. It's outside of ourselves that we just know. We just know, I, I'm not supposed to do this. Because it's a system of Christ at the center of it. The moment we put ourselves at the center of it, we're driven by experience. And in verse 18, down to verse 20. We see not only kind of that Christianistic end of it, but then we start to see it on that note. Where tradition can get in the way. I want to navigate this down through, but I want you to hear it. So back in verse 8, referencing back to Colossians 2 8, we talked about the traditions of men. And so in verse 20, it says, Why is it you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? This word traditions means, the word tradition means that which is handed down. That which is handed down. And so for us to know this, it is not wrong for churches to have tradition. There are a lot of traditions of the church that I love. Because I believe they, they bring about reverence to God. I believe they, they, they encourage us. I believe they give us some, some lanes and some guardrails to run. I love some traditions. But if we're honest with ourselves, can we pinpoint and acknowledge that there have been traditions that have taken place of Christ in our life? That have taken place of God's Word being the ultimate test? We're now using tradition as our ultimate test. That if it doesn't line up with my tradition, it may line up with God's word, but if it doesn't line up with my tradition, then I'll use that as my standard. You know, and then all throughout, this is mostly something that happens in the church, but even outside of the church. We can have family traditions. You know, uh, we, we would maybe even call it generational sin. You know, I, I've dealt with and told people before that come from families of alcoholics. The tradition that's been handed down to them is a tradition of alcoholism. That they believe that this is a tradition I need to uphold because this has defined my family up to this point, so why should I not carry it on? It just seems normal to carry it on. Like this is a tradition before me. This is what's been given to me. I mean, that sounds crazy to some of us, but people live by that standard. They live by the tradition of this generational sin that's been given down to them. In a lot of ways, they don't believe they can get out of it. So Paul says here, he says, why do you live as if you were still alive in the world? Why do you submit to these regulations? 
as if he was still in the world. Like I said, while it's not wrong to have traditions, where we as a church sometimes can fall short is when we allow those traditions to influence us more than God's words. You know, and there are a lot of good arguments for a lot of different things. You know, maybe when it comes to music or preaching styles or even like elements of your service and liturgy. Like, yeah, there's there's things that you can give and take with you. But then there are some things, some hills that we die on church that are not worth it. There are some that you, maybe you've been a part of that, maybe you've fought through that, or maybe you've experienced that. There are some hills that church people will die on that are suffocating the kingdom of God in that place. There are churches in our community right now that are being driven by tradition more than they're being driven by the command by God, and it is robbing them of experiencing the kingdom work that God wants to do in their lives. So that's, as Paul continues on, that's what he's speaking about in a lot of ways. You know, he, he uses this word that I have had trouble saying all week. Asceticism. Asceticism. We don't have a word so you can't see the word. But basically what this word means is it's a severe self-discipline. Or in a lot of ways, and maybe you've heard me say this before, a moralistic deism that views self-mutilation and self-neglect and self-denial as a way to make us holy and to avoid sin. And so basically what this is is a self-punishment, self-shaming, self-guilt. Uh, and, and, and for them, these people, and historically, they were attempting to be holy by punishing themselves. But what they were saying was, and what that shows us, and even how some Christians live today when they're grasping on to the law, or grasping on to the tradition so hard that they're suffocating themselves, is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to forgive me, right? Do you know people, have you been those people that live in so much shame of their past, of their present situation, that they believe that Christ's sacrifice is not enough? And so they live in a constant state of self-discipline and self-mutilation and self-neglect and never feeling like they're good enough, never feeling like God has any place at His table for them because they're in this constant cycle of disciplining themselves mentally, emotionally, because of their sin, because of their past, because of what they've done. And these people were living in this way. You know, and what they were doing is that they were, you know, for a lot of us, the power of Christ, the power of Christ in the life of a believer does not really restrain the desires of the flesh, but it puts new desires in us. And so when we're living by this kind of moralistic view where, where the, the God of our lives is morality, where the God of our lives is trying to do more do's than we do don'ts, you know what I mean? Like trying to check off the list of like good things. And this is not to say, this is not an argument to say that how we live doesn't matter. I believe in pursuing holiness and sanctification in the life of a believer. But a lot of times, especially in church, when we get very, we call it legalistic, right? When we get very strict, very staunch, like if you were doing this, this, and this, you have no place here. What we are doing is we are kind of feeding people into the cycle of self-discipline and self-mutilation where they have no place in the work that God has for them. What we are telling them is that if you smoke, if you drink, if you have tattoos, if you say curse words, if you've made mistakes, if you've had sex before marriage, if you've had kids out of wedlock, if you've done any of these things, then you're going 
and talking about traditions of man that keep us from experiencing what God has for us because what is at the center of it is not Christ anymore. What is at the center of it is either ourselves or some type of moralistic God that we've created. That Christ's sacrifice isn't good enough anymore but my morals are now the same. Listen, I need you. Romans 8, 7 tells us, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law, and it cannot. There is no mind on earth that within itself can direct itself towards God without needing some sort of intervention from God. And that is God even today in our lives, in your lives, leaning into this moment shaping us towards God. You know, and even in our traditions, but too often our traditions become a security blanket that becomes a security holding cell that keeps us in prison. That's when he talks about being captive by these human traditions. You know, we, we acknowledge the law, we acknowledge it's good and what it does for us, with us, and in us, but we also can't forget that Jesus is the reality that all of the law points to. All the rules, all the do's and the don'ts point to Jesus. And so, for us, and I'm finishing up, and the band can come and we'll be able to time of worship, but whether it is deceptive spirituality, Christian mysticism, we call it, you can use the if you need a little bit clearer explanation. Christian mysticism and deceptive spirituality are overbearing traditions. We can be deceived and miss the understanding and the knowledge that Christ intends for us to It's a church. We worry. We worry about ourselves. We worry about our children. We worry about the people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. We worry because these systems don't lead us to Christ. And Paul makes this clear. That He, Christ, is the source at which we draw from. Because Paul gave the lasting antidote, the true and lasting antidote to all false teaching, to all deception. He says in, in Colossians chapter uh, 2 verse 9, he says, All fullness is in Christ, and you have been made full in Him. Why then would you need anything else? That in Christ you were made full. That you were made complete. You know, the remarkable thing is this, that when he says this, he says, every believer shares that fullness. He says, yet you are complete in him. The tense here, the, the verbiage here, for this verb indicates that the fullness is a permanent experience. That the fullness that we have in Christ, the full experience of everything he has for us, everything he wants to do with us, that fullness is a permanent experience.
to be added to Christ because he is already has his fullness of God in Christ. So for us as Christians, we don't grow by addition. There is nothing that we add to our lives to grow or to be where Christ or who Christ called us to be. But we now grow. When we are in Christ, we grow by nutrition. We grow by Christ being at the center, by God's revealed word being the test, the standard in which we measure life by. Not by visions, not by traditions, not by angels. God Paul says in other places, if an angel comes and says anything to you that is not found in his word, it is false. It is the devil, it is deceptive. Everything we need to know can be found in God's word. If somebody gives you a vision about something God is doing or something God wants to do in your life, if it does not line up with the standard in which God's word is said, it is wrong. A Christian, a pastor, a prophet, an apostle, they can say whatever they want to say about how God thinks or how God does or God's view on this or God's view on marriage or God's view on whatever it might be. If it doesn't line up with God's word, it is false and it is deceptive. It is not the truth. And that is a beautiful thing for us. That sounds harsh, but it's a beautiful thing for us because we have an unchanging, absolute truth that we live by. And you know what's involved in that absolute truth? That if the Son has set me free, then I am free. Trust the absolute truths that God's Word contains. It doesn't only dictate some things around us and how we live in it, but it reminds us about who we are in I thank God for an absolute truth. I thank God for absolute standards and who He is and what He's done. And I just want to read these verses in Colossians to finish up, where Paul lays these things out. This is for in verse 9. For in the whole fullness of being dwells in God. And you have been filled in Him. Who is the head of all rule and authority? In Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What's He telling us? He says it's not about the religious duties. He says you've been changed separate from religious duties. They did these religious duties for thousands of years. He says because Christ has come, that's not the standard anymore. It's Jesus. He says you've been circumcised by putting off the flesh off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the spiritual circumcision. Having been buried with him in baptism. This is not a physical burying, but burying, but a spiritual work that God is doing. In which you were also raised with him. This is present tense. You were raised, or past tense, I'm sorry, this has been done. We were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead by nature. You were dead in the religious activities, the duties, the circumcision. You couldn't do enough. You were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. With its legal demands, there was an expectation, there was a demand, there was a hit put out on your life when you were born. There was a demand that was required 
things down on a piece of paper. He didn't say, Jake, this he did wrong, this he did wrong, this he did wrong. These are the punishments, these are the punishments, these are the punishments. That was already laid out. And he didn't take that and just nail it as a poster and say, look, they're up there on the cross. You know what he did? He nailed them to himself and he hung on that cross for us. He died a death that we deserved. He died a punishment that we should have taken. Truth. We can't nitpick and take what truth we want and what we don't want. Because it's, it's all inclusive. Listen, it's going gonna, it's gonna to push us in some uncomfortable spaces. It's going to cause us to, to push away some things that our feelings want. But to lead us to a greater truth in His Word. That He has taken all the shit, all the junk, all the dirt that we created and the mess that we made in our life took it upon himself, nailed himself to that cross, and he died. Not only did he die, but like we talked about last Sunday, he rose again to show us that he has defeated the eternality of death so that we can live forever with him. And you know what? If we spend, if I spend whatever years God has for me, denying myself of some fleshly lives, Say I deny myself, probably definitely not perfectly, the next 90 years, or 30 years, sorry, 30 years of some things that I feel like I want. It's nothing compared to the eternity of the joy, the inheritance God has for me. It's going to be hard to push away some things that our flesh wants, to push away some things that we feel like we need. God says, I have so much
question, why should I worry about what I believe about God and where I get my information from as far as what means God has in the rest of the standard in which we measure our lives by? Don't worry because not all has to be We can be guaranteed that His revealed word and the open church that He's given us, if we're driven by that, that He will lead us down that path. And marriages,